Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Ben Ranson is a prominent geography teacher and maths enthusiast. Having started his teaching career in 2010, he now works as an assistant head, leading Key Stage 3 at the El Alson British International School in Cairo, Egypt. Ben is really interested in engaging with mathematics and has successfully incorporated mathematical skills into his geography teaching. He's here with us today to share some of his work and has a few tips for any fellow professionals out there interested in treading the same path. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Numeracy in geography is more than merely working with numbers. It requires students to have the ability to use numbers and mathematical concepts within geographical tasks. Is that fair to say? I think so. Um, When we talk about numeracy, we're talking about using the ideas from maths to be able to live our daily lives. Uh, We can think about the sorts of things we'd want our students to be good at. And I guess being in charge of Key Stage 3, I spend a lot of time thinking about where our students are going to end up. And the idea that they go on to be members of society who can add value, where they can participate fully in the process of democracy. Being statistically literate plays a really big role in that. So geography is this study of the world around us in all of its fascinating physical and human complexity and beauty. There's more of it than we could ever kind of hope to see with our own eyes in one lifetime. So there's this reliance on being able to make sense of the world through the data and information that's being collected by other people. Now, to be able to do that, we need to be really comfortable with mathematical ideas like proportion or ratio, percentages and scales, and how to reliably estimate. Understanding big geographical ideas like demographic change or wealth inequality, they don't just require us to be able to grasp kind of concrete first-hand accounts and personal narratives, but make meaning from data sets that can otherwise seem quite abstract and removed from what we're studying. So if we're serious about having this kind of generation of statistically literate citizens, then we need to take really seriously the need for students to be using maths and the sorts of tasks and challenges we're creating for them in geography lessons. That's really great to hear. A lot of this work you're doing revolves around the AMSP programme. Could you explain what that is? Um, I can explain what it is to me, which is a group of incredibly helpful people who I hold in really high esteem, who I keep pestering on Twitter and who do their best to answer all of the questions that I have and when I kind of throw them out into the ether. Uh, Broadly speaking, the MSP is an organisation devoted to increasing the number of students taking Level 3 maths qualifications, and they're particularly focused on areas where historic uptake in studying maths has, has been quite low, kind of bringing more maths to the people there. Its relationship with the IGS is kind of trying to improve the quality of of maths and numeracy that's that's found in geography lessons and in curriculums in secondary schools. And what have you done with them? I've attended one of their free CPD days in London and and since then I've just sort of continued to annoy the people that, that had the misfortune of presenting to me. So back in 2016 I moved back to the UK from having taught in China. Uh, We changed syllabuses, kind of picking up with the Edexcel A-level geography syllabus and the statistical demands of things that I was expected to be able to teach were a little bit higher than I really understood or was able to know or knew at the time. So 
you know, whilst I tried to work out what a student's t-test might be or a chi-squared test might be, I wasn't really getting very far by myself. I had a little look and discovered that there was an organization that was literally putting on a course designed for geography teachers who were a little bit worried about their statistical knowledge and understanding, who wanted to be taught more so that they could go on to do it really, really well themselves in classrooms. Uh, since then, um, CAT's been super useful. Every time I've tweeted about maths and geography, whether that was kind of powering up the bat signal and asking for help or sharing something I've been working on, she's always been really, really quick to respond, generally sharing a wealth of resources that she's put together. Which unit skills lend themselves to incorporating maths? Well, I think the, the shorter answer to this might be trying to think of units of inquiry in secondary geography where we don't make use of maths. Um, at the moment, I'm getting really, really inspired by the way some other geography teachers are incorporating kind of big open data sets into their teaching practice, something that maybe better reflects what geography looks like in the avenues of knowledge creation. There's probably four main ones that stand out to me where, where the use of maths is really integral and where we'd really be promoting numeracy and geography. So studying of hazards, both our monitoring of hazards and our understanding of who has been affected and to what degree. Um, in our teaching and our critique of ideas around development, there's a good question to be asked about how many of us really hold like a data-informed perspective and how many of us are just holding on to outdated stereotypes that don't really stand up to much in the way of scrutiny. Um, our teaching of demographics and migration in terms of how populations change and people move. And I think there's a big role to play in terms of our understanding of the causes and impacts of the climate crisis, that this really, really lends itself well to an understanding of the data sets that have been collected by scientists and which have, in all honesty, been broadcast for a really long time. And often data sets are incredibly vast and difficult to understand, to process and to manipulate. Part of the AMSP programme is about supporting other subjects within specialisms like geography, but it's also a standalone subject called core maths. Does the L. Alson British International School offer it at A level? And if so, is there any overlap? Um, it doesn't. And one of the reasons it doesn't is because maths remains one of the most popular A-level choices at, at El Alson. Um, certainly a school where a large number of our students go on to study maths and a large number of them go on to study further maths as well. What you might find interesting is that I'm studying core maths. Um, I sort of feel that as a school leader, as somebody who looks at a lot of school data and is involved in making decisions about that, after going to that CPD day, and I guess being exposed to some of the decision-making processes built on data, I came to realize that I probably wasn't as statistically literate as I thought I was. You know, that blind idea of if you ask people how good they think they are without them having much in the way of a benchmark, we'd all overestimate our own capabilities. I probably thought that I was much better at looking at data, making reasonable interpretations and taking appropriate actions than I've actually turned out to be. And given that I'm in a role where that's something I have to do, I sort of feel like I should be able to. So I think core maths is of enormous benefit. I've learned loads in the brief time that I've been following along. Its applicability to real world situations offers a huge amount of potential for people who perhaps haven't felt that a lot of the maths that they were doing in, in their maths classroom fitted with their experiences of life. Where I've worked at places in the past, I've seen what I might consider to be a really good approach to this, 
which was that there was a core maths course offered for everybody who wasn't doing maths. And this is because like the demands for numeracy and mathematical understanding have increased in a lot of A-level subjects. And the way that that was organized, we had teachers from our maths department who worked with our heads of other subjects, so from biology, from geography, from, so, uh, from psychology and sociology, to put in how that maths would be applied in their subject so that the core maths on offer was built around the demands of other subjects. And I guess for me, as somebody who you know, still has quite a long way to go in their own mathematical understanding and keeps coming up against kind of the limits of their own knowledge, it was a great relief to feel that some of that was outsourced in terms of understanding the statistical processes, that we were making use of greater expertise and that our students then became the conduit taking that knowledge between where we were looking at it in a geography classroom and where they would be looking at it in a maths classroom. That's really impressive you've picked it up for yourself and are doing the qualification, Ben. A lot of the time, problems around mathematics and geography stem from the teachers not feeling confident or, as you said, not being statistically literate. So we come to the main part of this podcast. What work are you specifically doing in school involving maths within geography? So lots of it is is probably quite subtle, or at least it's sufficiently well entwined that I don't know that to begin with I would have picked it out as being specific things that we were doing towards numeracy. So our first topic in year seven, so when our kind of students join us from the primary and they move into secondary, our first one is looking at maps and taking like a chronological overview of the development of maps. And it starts off back with Eratosthenes. And we, we tell this kind of narrative of Eratosthenes there working in the Great Library of Alexandria, which obviously our students being in Egypt, we love the idea that they're getting a call out to their home nation there. Um, compiling all of this information and reading that on the on the solstice that there was that there was no shadow cast in the deepest well in the in the city of Siam. Obviously, we can then use Google Maps and we can work out where where Aswan is now in relation to where that would have been. And the idea of him measuring the shadow cast on one of the columns in Alexandria on the same day and getting this measurement of seven point two degrees, one fiftieth. So. 7.2 degrees, then setting out, depending on the version of the story, sometimes by chariot, sometimes by camel, sometimes he doesn't go, he sends someone else, but we kind of go with the idea that he sets off on this journey on camelback with his entourage to measure the overland distance between Sain and Alexandria. And from doing that by having the degrees and having that overland distance, he's able to work out the circumference of the earth. And we invite our students to do this calculation to using the data that would have been collected to work out what Eratosthenes would have worked the circumference of the Earth out as being. Then comes the big reveal and we go, aha, the Earth's actually an elliptical geoid, it's not a perfect sphere, so you're wrong. But it's within a 1% accuracy margin, which is astonishing given how long ago those calculations were first done, and it brings kind of a sense of awe to it. As we continue with that topic, we make links between the study of grid references and looking at coordinates in maths. Students are really comfortable with coordinates in maths, and as soon as you explain, oh, it's similar, but with one notable difference to coordinates, it's like we get hundreds of little light bulbs firing up and kind of an electrical current going through the room. But once we're confident that a grid reference would point you to kind of the bottom left-hand corner rather than the center of that square, suddenly grid references goes from being something that I think I've found quite challenging to get students to, to really engage with in the past to something that they pick up really quickly. 
that topic continues kind of looking at maps and bringing in ideas of um, of map projections. And I'm reminded at this point of the episode of The West Wing, where you have the, the people there that go and speak about like school maps for social justice and how they want to have a Peter's projection put up on every classroom and not, not a Mercator. Now, Mercators have all sorts of issues in terms of how they present the earth, but they're really, really good for nautical navigation. So understanding why that map would have been made and what it was made for, what its purpose was, really helps. And we introduced them in year seven, in this first term, to Tissot's Indicatory. Now, we don't go through the maths of how those are calculated. This isn't really for that level of understanding. It's for realisation and exposure. They can look at those circles and see how much they are distorted by their movement, either in terms of latitude or longitude. What we're interested in is their ability to describe the impact of those distortions on our perceptions, how we might perceive the Earth differently based on how those, those indicatories are distorted. So this is taking what might be mathematics that we would otherwise avoid and making it something that's much more straightforward by just having all the circles pre-printed on a page. Now we, we start from there and kind of our maths continues onwards. In year eight, um, there's a big project that I'm gonna talk about, which is our kind of carbon balance project. And this takes, this takes quite a few weeks for our students to kind of investigate and collect all of their information. Like many schools, we found ourselves limited as to what our fieldwork options were and have been in the last couple of years. Because what he gave me was the idea of measuring trees as cylinders. So treating trees just as a, as a geodesic shape. Now I spoke to our maths department and they told us that they haven't learnt the formula for cylinders yet, but they had mastered kind of learning the formulas for other shapes, so it shouldn't be beyond us to introduce the formula for cylinders at that point. Once we've got our head around the fact that we are measuring trees because we're interested in then calculating its mass from its volume, from that its biomass, and from that how much of it is carbon that has been sequestered from the atmosphere, we have an idea of how much carbon is sequestered by our school site. Now the maths involved in this uh, can be as, I guess, as complex or as simplistic as you want to make them. The formula stays the same, but our process of how we go about collecting it, whether they're doing it with bits of string, whether they downloaded measurement apps on their phone. What we learned was that our school site has over 420 trees in it, which means that there's a lot of estimation that goes in where we will measure the biggest one and the smallest one of a bunch of trees in a row, take averages, it will be the best of five, and estimate it from that, which brings in questions to reliability, how much we can trust data sets that are kind of estimated or, or use similar methods. So that was working out how much carbon gets sequestered in our school site and comparing that to how much gets emitted. Students travel from all across Cairo to come to El Alson School. Uh, we're really fortunate in the fact that we enjoy a really good reputation within kind of our local community and lots of parental support in this regard, but we have buses that will set off and collect people from almost every district of Cairo and bring them to the part of New Giza that we're in. There's there's a carbon emission associated with that. So our students, in an effort to work out what the carbon balance of our school site was, created surveys, collected data. We learned a lot about kind of effective survey questions where we might have biasing questions, sorts of questions that people might have difficulty filling out, which a number of them learned in hindsight, and then collating that data to work out, well, ultimately, whether or not we are a neutral site. Do we emit or sequester more? And it was a fascinating project that kind of encapsulated lots of our thinking and brought together 
lots of the work that they had done in maths lessons with lots of the work that we'd done earlier on understanding kind of the causes of the climate crisis to something that was immediately relevant to them and making the best use of the facilities and opportunities that we had for field work. Finally, what would your advice be to incorporate more maths into the geography curriculum for anyone listening today? So speaking personally, I think the limiting factor for me was how good I actually was at maths. Um, which is strange because I have an A-level in maths and it's got quite a good num or quite a good letter next to it. But for me, the limiting factor was how confident I was in using maths and the fact that I had this mental block around being exposed to statistical formulas that made use of characters that I was unfamiliar with made me not want to engage with it. I think one of the big advantages of the AMSP course that I went on was that as soon as we started playing with Desmos as an online calculator, I didn't have to be able to use that equation, or at least I didn't have to know it off by heart and be able to solve it. The machine did the work for me. And what I could do was focus on the really good geography of understanding what that meant. So there's gonna be a twofold bit here, that one is that our own, our own feelings and thoughts surrounding how capable or confident we feel is gonna act like a limiting factor to how well we can use maths with us. The, the exchange to that is the fact that there's an awful lot of help and support out there through things like the RGS and its relationship with kind of MSP and the resources that it makes available. I'm really fortunate that every school that I've worked in has had a numeracy coordinator, somebody who's been more than willing to give up their time. And do you know, people that apply to be numeracy coordinators they're absolutely people that want to sit around and talk to you about how great maths is and how much you can use maths in your subject. What they're probably not is experts in the sorts of geography that we'd want to teach. What I found is the more that I've spoken with numeracy coordinators and the more time I've spent with kind of the heads of maths departments talking about how we might use maths to solve the sorts of problems or address the kinds of questions we have in geography, the more I've noticed the sorts of ways that we use maths in geography has filtered into the way that they talk about how that maths relates to people's real lives. And the more they've talked about how you could use the sorts of maths that they're learning in, in maths in other contexts and relate it to things kind of broader and more widely. So, yeah, biggest stumbling block for me, probably confidence and personal knowledge. Biggest advantage, the fact that I was whether I knew it or not, surrounded by people that would genuinely give up a huge amount of time to help me out and to make it as good as it could possibly be. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Thank you. For anyone listening and interested, please go to www.rgs.org forward slash geomaths for more. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.